to another episode of Public Problems. My name is Justin Book, and I'm your host. Today, I'm chatting with a few uh, master's students who are working on their master's in public service and administration at the Bush School of Government and Public Service, and some students of mine. Um, and they've done a, a project on the increasing mother mortality rate um, in the U.S. and looking and trying to understand what are some of the factors associated with that and what types of policies we might uh, put in place or think about to lower that rate. So I'm going to let the students um, introduce themselves, and then we will get right to the topic of the day. Uh, my name is Zach Cochran. I'm Jasmine Walia. My name is Carolina Libuja. I'm James Palacios. I'm Haley Duncan. All right. So you'll be hearing a, a number of different voices today. We're, we're not going to ask them to repeat their names as we go, um, but uh, you'll be hearing it from a couple different spaces. So, um, well, why don't we start with uh, explaining exactly what is a maternal mortality or mother mortality? Give me the right terms there. I've been botching them already. So see if you can set me straight. So I think one thing that's really important to realize is that the definition for maternal mortality is set out by the World Health Organization, or the WHO, um, and it is used among the member nations to ensure consistent data collection across countries. Okay. Um, so the World Health Organization s publishes the International Classification of Disease. Okay. Currently, they're on the 10th edition. They're currently working for the 11th edition, um, as we speak, actually. And a maternal death is considered the death of the death of a woman while pregnant within 42 days of the termination of a pregnancy, irrespective of the duration or site of pregnancy, and it can be caused by anything pregnancy related. Um, so this could capture just if, if, uh, all kinds of things. So it doesn't have to be related specifically to the pregnancy. It's just correct. the care so be, of the mother. Right. So it could be related to or aggravated by the pregnancy or the management of pregnancy. Okay. So it's not necessarily... Um, caused by pregnancy, but it could be also outside forces as well. And how long have we had access to this kind of consistent definition from the World Health Organization? Is just pretty recently? Have we had it for maybe a decade or two? So the World Health Organization has been looking at these since 1990. Okay. Um, and if I'm not mistaken, they've been put, they put out some millennium, millennium health goals um, that were not reached by any country. Yeah. And they put out additional goals, which are what countries are working towards now. Okay. Um, it's, yeah. So. Okay, so it's defined by the World Health Organization in a pretty specific way, mm -hmm. which is if a, from the time of a pregnancy, however it ends or is terminated, right. so, the next 42 days. So this doesn't include death during pregnancy, for example. As long as, correct. So a maternal mortality death is during the pregnancy or the 42 days after. So it's the whole duration. Right. For, okay, yeah. got it. Got it. <laughs> I was like, no, it's okay. <laughs> um, so, so, so we're all on the same page. A maternal death is defined by the World Health Organization. It's classified in its international classification of disease, like you said, and it is the death of a woman while pregnant mm -hmm. or within 42 days after the termination of the pregnancy, right. no matter how the pregnancy ends when those 42, 42 days. And that is standardized across all the members of the World Health Organization. The member nations. Okay. And what are we broadly looking at in terms of the prevalence of this? I know there's variations by country, um, but are we... 
is it is it measured in per thousands per ten thousands i mean how frequent is this still in 2017 yeah so um just to touch on that first part of how it's measured it's typically measured um they call it maternal mortality rate which they abbreviated as mmr and it's um every death per 100,000 okay. um, live births um so just to um kind of put it into perspective um you think that when you hear mother mortality or maternal mortality that it's kind of a developing world issue and mm -hmm. that you wouldn't think that it's happening in the united states but um that actually would be a wrong assumption um it's actually a really huge problem in the united states and um you know that's kind of the reason that we looked into this project because you know we saw kind of the rates that are going on in the united states specifically and um, it was concerning, and that's why we wanted to kind of delve in further. So it seems like uh, there could be two pieces here. It could be sort of the absolute level. So I'm curious how the U.S. I I wasn't fully aware before I looked at your report the differences across the. I had heard pieces that it wasn't so good in the U.S. Mm -hmm. and I had heard that it was trending upward. Correct. So that seems insane to me that it's 2017 and maternal mortality rate is trending upward. So I want to hear if that's true and more about that. And then, but then how does the U.S. compare in absolute levels? You mentioned it's it's certainly a problem here, but how does it compare to other developed and developing countries? Yeah, so um, interestingly, there, is, there was a slight decrease last year for 2016 numbers, but in 2015, um, the MMR for the U.S. was um, 14 deaths for every 100,000 live births. Um, and then just to put that into perspective, our neighbors up north in Canada had an MMR of seven, which, I mean, they're half of what half. we are. So yeah. it's interesting that, you know, we're culturally, simi sim culturally similar and obviously we're neighbors. Um, mm -hmm. So it's interesting that we, something's going on in the United States. So our rate is double that of Canada. Yeah. So what, what other countries are sort of similar around the 14, um, is, I mean, how bad is it in, in the developing world? So the closest number we have to 14 is going to be 12, and that's in Portugal. Other than that, we have nine in the UK, uh, UK, which is Great Britain and Northern Ireland. And then we have eight in Ireland, as well as eight uh, deaths per 100,000 live births in France. Okay, so it's much lower in like other developed countries. Right, we, we, we are the highest, we have the highest MMR in developed countries. Yes. And... Okay, so not to, well, why is that? It seems kind of weird to me, right? I mean, we have lots of resources, lots of good, high-quality health care. Um, why is it that in the U.S. it's higher than other developed countries and not in the most recent years, as Haley pointed out, but in general it, it had been trending up? So what's going on there? So in the U.S. specifically, there are two issues that are prevalent in terms of access to health care, and these relate to pre-existing health conditions that women have here and then racial disparities among women in the U.S. So as far as pre-existing health conditions go, they contribute to maternal mortality rates all over the world, but in the United States specifically, more women are becoming pregnant in spite of these chronic health conditions, so they're going into this already kind of a step behind because they already have these health conditions. So pre-existing um, pre health conditions, meaning uh, health conditions that a mother would have before the pregnancy, uh, have an influence on the mother mortality rate. Like if, if yeah. overall she's in not great health before the pregnancy, mm -hmm. she's at a higher risk for uh, death. 
right? Sure. And these can be very common things like diabetes, hypertension, and cardiac disease. So things that are really prevalent in the nation as it is. Um, so whenever women are going into their pregnancies with these conditions, um, they're already kind of facing a higher risk for complications. Um, and then in addition to the health conditions, uh, with the high rate of obesity here and then the increasing age that women are getting pregnant and having children, that's also contributing to the rate of maternal mortality. Uh, so part of it is is just that um, Americans are less healthy than their counterparts. Yes. And is that part of the story is just that we're less healthy than Canada, at least as one contributing factor, <laughs> less right? Less healthy and then less healthy without the access to health care, right? Mm -hmm. So it's a combination of those things. And so you mentioned racial disparities. Um, what is that like in the U.S.? I mean, is it that... Um, is the rate really being driven upward um, by certain groups? I mean, is it mm -hmm. is it worse for Hispanics or Blacks uh, than it is for Whites? Or what's the what's the breakdown there? So in the U.S., actually, Black women are much worse off than all other racial groups. Um, so actually, just to put this in kind of shock, what I consider shocking terms, there are 40.4 deaths per 100,000 live births for black women and only 12.1 deaths per 100,000 white women. So about four times as many deaths in the black community. And then uh, Hispanic women actually kind of fall in between that. Uh, they're experiencing about 16 deaths per 100 live births along with other racial groups. Um, but yeah, there's definitely a huge difference in the number of uh, the black women in the United States and white women mm -hmm. um, with such a huge difference. And there's not a complete understanding of what's causing those differences. However, research has uh, predicted risk factors, uh, including with these black women having less education, having children at a younger age, having less or later experience with prenatal care, and then having uh, low coverage uh, in terms of health insurance. So all of these reasons are kind of contributing to why that uh, gap between the two groups is, is so significant. And so it really then is um, an, it, what's driving the rate up at a, an absolute level compared to the count to our developed counterparts is the is the access and uh, quality of health care and um, the socioeconomic status factors that uh, are related to minority groups. I mean, a rate of 40.4 um, uh, is, is just wild, which I think is what it is in the report, compared to, I mean, it's, it's almost four times what it is for white women. Um, okay, so what are some other factors? So we talked about, um, uh, just talked about racial disparities, talked a little bit about um, overall access and some issues with that. So what are some of the other issues surrounding um, the, the trying to sort through how to solve maternal mortality rate? Mm -hmm. Well, it's actually, it's funny because something that you and Zach discussed at the beginning of the podcast was the definition of it. It's mm -hmm. a little bit confusing to wrap your head around. How do we define maternal mortality? And then that, of course, affects how it's captured and how it's recorded. Um, the one thing I was thinking about with that definition, so if you got in a car crash or had nothing related to do with your pregnancy or health care, that would, that, would, that would raise the 
the the rate, right? Because if, would, if you die for an accidental reasons, that would still be counted? It would be captured as a maternal mortality, yes, sir. All right, so there's some measurement issues. Right, there's these measurement issues that make it difficult to code the number of deaths. Um, and then there's actually two other similar definitions that are often used that are kind of confusing in terms of if a woman dies while she's pregnant or shortly thereafter, uh, there's other definitions like late maternal death and pregnancy-related death, which I feel like if you ask some person off the street, they're not going to know which of those three to classify it as because sure. they all sound so similar. So it, the definitions uh, as a whole can kind of seem confusing. Mm -hmm. uh, and then besides the definitions, the data collection methods of maternal mortality rates are difficult to capture. Uh, and there's a method that's used all over the world called the Civil Registration and Vital Statistics Management Program, and that uh, exists to capture all the births and deaths, including the cause of death information that's supposed to be given by a qualified medical professional. Mm -hmm. And so they capture this information uh, on an international scope, and it's supposedly the golden standard for death me measurement uh, mm -hmm. regarding maternal mortality. But the system is weak in a lot of areas with a lot of countries that have high rates of maternal mortality. So this leads to overall missing deaths and then failing to report on certain uh, cases. So the idea here is just like that it's challenging to track deaths in lots mm -hmm. of different countries and uh, other information about that person. Right. Yes. And so even if you have the death certificate, you still have to know other pieces of information like were they recently pregnant? Right. And so... I imagine this data isn't always collected in the way that would be ideal. Right, and part of that's because the data collection relies so heavily on individual informants. So we're putting a lot of trust in the healthcare professionals and people that are around these women um, to kind of report the most accurate information so that we can record these deaths. However, of course, there's going to be flaws with that system, and so deaths are getting missed along the way. Mm -hmm. Uh, and then there's actually one more uh, problem with uh, that's kind of causing maternal mortality to persist as it is today, and that's the C-section rate in the United States. Um, and it's actually risen to above 30%. Uh, and with cesarean rates, there's a higher risk of a lot of complications, of course. Um, and 30% uh, seems awfully high. Yes. Um, do, is, has it been on the rise as well? Do we know? That's really interesting. That's thirty percent of births. Thirty percent of births yeah. and by C-section. That's oh, okay. I didn't know it was that much. Um, yeah, and the rate of maternal death has been causal, causally related to the method of delivery, delivery, and of course with uh, C-section delivery the rate is a lot higher, 2.2 per 100,000 versus 0.2 per 100,000 just with a typical vaginal birth. So just having a high cesarean uh, rate would also drive this because there's more likely to be complications with that, right? Yeah. Okay. Okay, so I think this gives a nice lay of the where specifically the U.S. in particular is and how it relates to other developed countries and the kind of story of some of this is related to quality of health uh, for the citizens, access to health, 
Um, and these things are clearly differentiated across racial disparities. Um, and um, also the way in which the birth occurs is also related to this. So as you have more of a need for C-sections, that can also drive up the rate. So before we go to um, kind of solutions, who, who are the major players in this field? I, mean, I think it's useful to kind of stop and think uh, who are the major stakeholders before we start moving on to ways in which we might try to solve this problem. So could you tell me a little bit about that? So uh, one of the first ones we talked about was the taxpayers in America. Taxpayers play a huge role in helping to make sure that maternal mortality isn't increased even more than it already is. And that is because of the number of publicly funded contraceptive and family planning programs that exist. And if it wasn't for those, a lot of these individuals would not have the access to public uh, funded contraceptives. And just to put that into, I guess, some sort of perspective, in 2014, there was 38 million women that needed contraceptive care. Uh, 20 million of those needed publicly funded contraceptive care. And that's either because they were below the federal poverty line or they were younger than the age of 20. So it's really important to understand that the taxpayer plays a huge role in ensuring that this does not get even worse than it currently is. And that a lot of people really depend on publicly funded means of contraceptives and family planning issues as well. And then with that, at the same time, comes state and federal legislatures and how they apportion their funding into... Um, either contraceptive or family planning programs. And a lot of that comes through either Title IX or through the Public Health and Service Act, which helps many economically disadvantaged women have access to that. And in uh, fiscal year 2010, the amount of public expenditures for family planning totaled about $2.37 billion. Medicaid made up about 75% of that. Uh, and then 12% came from Title IX. So in fiscal year 2010, um, there was over $2.37 billion dollars in family planning, but the bulk of that came, in, from, Medicaid. came from Medicaid. Yeah, definitely. All right? So it's important to understand that, you know, the state and federal legislatures play an important role in how much mm -hmm. they are going to either give to that program or take away because it's going to affect the overall maternal mortality rate of that area of that state, wherever this, um, the state or the country, I'm sorry. So one thing to remember here that, that maybe we haven't highlighted yet is, is the is the point James is making, which is this isn't just a federal issue. Uh, so there's there's the international issue, right? And then there's federal or national governance mm -hmm. in the U.S. But states also provide a lot of the actual um, programs on the ground in the U.S. And so this is also very much about how the states choose to regulate and provide health care as well. Yes, right? definitely. Okay. So you got federal and state legislatures. Taxpayers also play a role in this um because a lot of the mechanisms that help lower the rate in the, or the, a lot of the mechanisms that provide yes. healthcare to women um, are publicly funded, Definitely, right? Yes. Okay. And so any other pieces of this that we should be thinking about? There's also healthcare providers that have a stake in this maternal mortality problem uh, because it's on them to kind of use those accurate definitions uh, when reporting and then reporting the correct numbers using the best best methods possible. Um, there's a lot at stake for them um, and a lot of importance that kind of lies on their reporting. Uh, so recognizing the significance of the problem and trying to uh, combat some of the problematic aspects of it 
um, is going to end up affecting these mothers and their healthcare facilities and the stakeholders in those facilities, and then the reputations of themselves as uh, healthcare professionals. I mean, the healthcare professionals seem to be an important piece, particularly in addressing, as I imagine, when we get to the solutions. Um, because they're the ones working with the women um, as they're experiencing these uh, health conditions. And so how they manage that relationship and the resources and time and that are dedicated to that, um, my guess will play a pretty significant role in how to address this and the funding mechanisms associated with that. Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, who's being directly affected by this are the women. So mothers have maybe the greatest stake in this problem, right? So maternal mortality is now the sixth most common cause of death for women between the ages of 25 and 34. So that's a significant portion of women and, you know, that's pretty young to be concerned about such a big issue like this that kind of is expansive in a lot of different ways. Uh, So women are, of course, going to be worried about themselves and the well-being of their children and their families. Um, but women who have pre-existing health conditions, maybe who have a lack of access to health care, are of certain racial groups. I mean, these women are going to have a lot at stake uh, in particular. I would say um, threat of death is a pretty serious thing to have at stake, right? So, okay, so what do we do about this? What do we know about how to solve this? I believe in your report you focused on a specific case where there had been some state level research done on how to address it at the state level and since we are all present in the current wonderful state of texas i believe that the case was on texas is that correct it is let's hear about it uh you mentioned state and federal legislatures and having an impact on this and this is extremely important especially here in texas so texas recognized that there was an issue in maternal mortality and it's been increasing significantly So in 2013, they established the Texas Maternal Mortality and Morbidity Task Force that was passed through Senate Bill 495. And this bill uh, basically gave the resources needed to the Department of State Health Services to allow them to form this task force with about 13 individuals that are appointed by the commissioner and the, I'm sorry, by the commissioner of the Texas Department of State Health Services. And Mm -hmm. all these 13 individuals are very highly qualified in the field of either, um, in the healthcare field, in maternal mortality, either they work with uh, obstetrics or in uh, or nurses or midwives, but they're so all very... A wide array of healthcare Exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So when they formed this Senate bill, there was a provision made that in 2016, they were going to have to provide an update to the Texas legislature on what they found and how they found it and what they, basically what they did for the last couple of years in finding this. And it's interesting because a lot of the information that they found, a lot of their findings almost confirmed everything else that we found. Mm -hmm. And so they divided up into three different sections. So the first one is statewide trends of maternal deaths. And it's interesting, though, this is one of the biggest things that I thought was really interesting is that the WHO, the World Health Organization, defines maternal death as 42 days. Uh But for the purpose of this report, the Texas Task Force decided that they were going to classify a maternal death as any woman who has died within 365 days of a birth or fetal death. So, I mean, at this point, the task force even recognizes that they have to do this in order to find a maternal death. Yeah. Just so have they, to be different in Texas, don't yeah. we? You just have to do things the Texas way. <laughs> so they use the calendar years 2011 and 2012. 
So when it comes to statewide trends of maternal deaths, this report found that, number one, black women bear the greatest risk of maternal death, mm -hmm. that overdose by illicit or illicit prescription drugs emerged as a leading cause of maternal death, of majority, excuse me, a majority of maternal deaths occur later than 42 days after delivery, and I think that's an obvious one because they did it 365 days. <laughs> yeah, sure. Uh, and then data quality issues related to the death certificate make it difficult to identify a maternal or obstetric death. So basically, one of the biggest things it found was that there is a bunch of data quality issues as far as at the local level when, you know, you have a coroner that's out there, a justice of the peace, a lot of times they don't know whether to, whether to make it a maternal mortality death or if it was related to something else. Mm -hmm. And a lot of times there's issues right now on how the data is being collected. And there's not a uniformed way of gathering that data or identifying what is a maternal mortality death. Which just builds off the international problem, right? Exactly. Here at home in, in Texas, it has that issue as well. Okay. So then it reviewed the maternal death cases in Texas. And in that, it found that one, opportunities exist to screen and refer women with mental health and substance use needs this is either before they get pregnant or afterward this is one of the things that i found really interesting was that they recognize that it's important to also help these women that are planning on getting pregnant to inform them you know we need to assess your risk before you get pregnant mm -hmm. and how to make sure that you have a healthy baby mm -hmm. and that you're safe throughout the process and they uh in the recommendations they talk about one of the solutions to that their second finding as far as maternal death cases is that there is a notable variation and how maternal deaths are investigated, which goes back to the fact that at the local level, a lot of people just, there isn't a uniformed way of doing it. Uh, their third finding is that a redaction of cases prior to nurse abstraction has prolonged the time to review maternal death cases. This actually comes back to a administrative issue within the task force. Okay, so explain that one to me. So basically what has to happen is that the task force cannot receive um, information they cannot receive information that has the names or like confidential information basically so what has to happen is that there is an individual that works for the department of health state services uh, that's not on the task force but it works for the, them has to extract this information and go through it and basically like clean it mm -hmm. before it can get to the task force okay so because they're having to do this it's taking the task force a lot longer to actually analyze this information so what they're saying is basically they need to either cut the middleman there so it just goes straight to them or they need to get more personnel to do that. And that's also addressed in their recommendations as well. Yeah. And then finally, the last one they identified is maternal morbidity, which is something that we hadn't touched on a lot. And the first one is there's a prevalence estimate, I'm sorry, prevalence estimates of severe maternal morbidity differ greatly by methodology. Mm -hmm. The second is geographic and racial ethnic disparities emerged in cases of hemorrhage and or blood transfusion. And that was also an interesting thing to notice that there is a um, a large number of African-Americans that have cases of hemorrhage or blood transfusion, which also puts them at risk for maternal mortality. And then the third finding was mental and behavioral health issues contribute to severe maternal morbidity. So basically, after you, if you go into you know postpartum depression or um, suicidal thoughts, after you have either you know, um, lost your child or if you've given birth, that these are some of the things that they need to identify afterward. Mm -hmm. So finally, to sum it up all up, they gave six recommendations that I'll go through briefly. And the first one is basically that the, they need, there needs to be an increase of health services during the year after delivery and throughout the interconception period to improve continuity of care and enable effective care transitions and reduce the cost of care and Medicaid program. So basically, if they don't, for lack of a better term, we need to make sure that we're 
getting healthier babies. Mm -hmm. So if the mother has an issue before, then she's, um, you know, pre-existing condition, it's really going to affect the baby, it's going to affect her. Mm -hmm. The second one is to increase provider and community awareness of health disparities and implement programs that increase the ability of women to self-advocate. So basically they want to try to find some community involvement-based programs. Mm-hmm. They're going to tell them, you know, um, let's try to uh, schedule, not schedule out your pregnancies, but you know, there's a certain time that's best to wait before you have another pregnancy. And, you know, what are things that you can do to improve your health, to make mm-hmm. sure that you're ready to have a child. Uh, the third one was increased screening for and referral to behavioral health services. So this one comes down to mental health and there needs to be a way that uh, physicians and other psychologists can help these individuals on a more one-to-one kind of basis and recognize that there's some issues that exist there and how we can avoid um, basically deaths after so again stemming from suicide postpartum depression suicidal thoughts mm-hmm. and then the fifth one is to promote best practices for improving the quality of maternal death reporting investigation so it goes back to finding a uniform method to establish across the state so that all these people that are having to determine these deaths just as the peace corners can do so properly. And we have a unified method of acknowledging that. And then of course, last, the final one was improve the quality of death certificate data. So basically it goes back again to, we need to make sure that there is a unified way of identifying that. So, um, this kind of made me think of, as you were going through these solutions, some of these, as you mentioned, are related to, um, having healthcare services after the pregnancy has ended mm-hmm. and particular concerns about the mother's uh, mental health state. And I had not actually thought about that as being a major driver of um, maternal deaths. So I know there's a lot of issues with the data. Do we know anything about what causes, like what types of deaths these women are experiencing? Do we, is the data fine-grained enough to know, is is suicide um, a large percent of this? Is it uh, more kind of uh, health complications, not mental health, but sort of related to the quality of the, of the delivery? Do we know any, does it, I know there's a lot of problems with the data, so we may not have this, but in, in your read, while you were looking, were you able to find any kind of breakdown at, because I think this, you know, knowing what the, how the women are dying seems to, like it would be helpful to know what the types of solutions we might care about. Well, going back to the pre-existing health conditions that we discussed, there's data that show uh, the percentage of all the pregnancy-related deaths that stem from pre-existing conditions. And the most prevalent case here is cardiovascular disease, and that's causing 15.5% of the uh, maternal deaths in the U.S., and this was between the years of 2011 and 2013 that this data was collected. Uh, And then it's actually followed by other non-medical, or I'm sorry, uh, other medical non-cardiovascular disease, and then infection, hemorrhage, cardiomyopathy, uh, so those are kind of the things that it lists, but these are all relating to, like I said again, with uh, the pre-existing conditions. Mm-hmm. But as far as... Um, so the pre-existing conditions are um, driving a lot of this. It's just sickly women have, because of access to health care or, or health choices, um, having children and become having complications 
related to their pre-existing health conditions after birth. So that is one of the driving factors here. So one of the things that this report mentions is depression and how that can lead to either, you know, um, thoughts of suicide or attempts to commit suicide. But it also mentions that depression can lead to an increase of chronic illnesses, being either cardiovascular disease or diabetes. So I think it, like the the connection there between depression and cardiovascular disease also goes back to the stemming issue of mental health because you're obviously at a higher risk of cardiovascular disease mm-hmm. if you're depressed. depressed. Mm-hmm. And I think that's also one of the biggest factors when it comes to mental health. So it also occurs to me that one thing we haven't talked about and you don't talk about in your report, um, but then I'll be interested to hear your thoughts on just kind of as a guess. So a lot of this sounds like it is about the quality of the woman's health immediately following pregnancy, right? If I remember correctly, the U.S. is one of only two countries that do not provide mandatory paid leave for women following a pregnancy. And so it seems to me that women just having gone through pregnancy, also having a prevalence of uh, some uh, health concerns going into that, uh, having to go immediately back into the workplace um, to support her family also seems like a, I know we haven't gotten to the policy pieces, but seems to me like one that could certainly exacerbate this problem by not having it, given that a lot of this has to do with the women's health post-pregnancy. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, I mean, I think, and you know, single parents and stuff like single household providers and for women, I think having to go back to work, you know, two weeks after having a baby, like that's a huge issue and that's not a policy that we thought of. So it's a great policy, you know, Um, good job. (laughs) Um, But I, yeah, I think that that's definitely an issue and just overall the uh, quality that um, women and especially low income women get in our country seems to be a huge issue that, um, you know, depending on your values, that might want to be assessed. Yeah, it's, I, it hadn't dawned on me until we were sitting here talking about it. I mean, I, from my own sort of way in which I, my own ethical structure, I think it's it's pretty wild that we expect our mothers to go back into the workforce uh, rapidly. Um, and, you know, there's all kinds of clear reasons why a child needs their mother around, particularly in the first year of mm-hmm. development. So I had... I thought about it in terms of the child's development and how it's harmful for children for their mothers to have to be in the workforce. But I hadn't actually thought about, uh, I don't have to worry about pregnancy issues, right? They don't affect me in the same way, right? And so I hadn't even thought about the ways in which it could be not just kind of detrimental to the mother's health, but actually maybe spike the um, the rate of maternal deaths. Yeah, I think that'd definitely be interesting to look into. Yes, actually, in my country, uh, women, uh, when in Ecuador, uh-huh, yeah. uh, women, we when they give birth, they we have three months to go back to work, mm-hmm. and uh, men have fifteen day, fifteen days, also. So it's not only about women taking care about uh, for their babies, but also men being able to take care of the baby and the and the mother. Yeah, it's interesting. I, I, I don't even really think, I mean, I know that parental leave is a, 
is kind of done at the national level in uh, in several places, but um, hadn't even really got to the parental part as we're just thinking about the maternal part and how that could be very useful for society. But it's clear to me as well, that not only to your point, do children need one of their parents around in those very initial early kind of days, certainly need both if possible, yeah. right? Um, okay, so we've shifted a little bit to policy solutions or just solutions in general um, for trying to protect mothers, um, which seems like something we should care about. And so let's talk through um, what some of your uh, solutions are. I mean, how, how do we think about lowering this rate? Some of it seems clear, right? Some of it seems that some of our healthcare policies um, make it difficult for women to get the quality of care that they need, particularly at a low socioeconomic status, and that by not giving mothers time to recover after a pregnancy without fear of having to provide for their family, those seem like ones that are pretty clear to me from this discussion. But what about more specifically? What did what did y'all find in your report? We've heard about the Texas case study, but what was your takeaway on how to lower this rate? Yeah, and I think just real quickly, um, based on what James just told us about the um, the task force that Texas put into place, it is interesting to note that the legislature has done nothing given those um, recommendations so far. So those have not been acted on. Exactly. The recommendations haven't been acted on. I think it's important to notice, though, that during the 85th first called session, which was if I'm not mistaken, July through early August, it's about 30 days, if I'm not mistaken, um, they did pass Senate Bill 17, which expands the the time in which the Maternal Mortality Task Force can study this issue. Um, so basically what they said is instead of... <laughs> hey, Sorry, they're, they're laughing because I am trying not to laugh. And that Zach's correction was that they did do something, did do which something was they allowed more time to, to study. study. All right. Um, so it's they expanded the date until um, September of 2023. So that will give us three more reports on mm -hmm. why maternal mortality is an issue in Texas. So if uh, those can't do it, I'm not 100% sure what can. Well, kidding aside, I'm all for science and research. So more of that is better. It would be nice to see actions on re these recommendations particularly since they were 13 health professionals of people who should know. And my understanding is that it also fits in broadly with your more extensive research. Yes. Or not, Correct. Yeah. Outside of Texas. Yeah. So tell me what we should do. So I think one of the things that may help us get a better grasp, not that we need a better grasp on the problem, but that will kind of help us figure out what exactly is causing a maternal mortality um, is expanding the window. As we mentioned earlier in the podcast, 42 days after the termination of a pregnancy um, is rather short. Mm -hmm. um, so what Texas was doing and what the Maternal Mortality Task Force is doing is giving them 365 days. That gives quite a large time frame to say, oh, this was attributed to the pregnancy in some way. Um, one thing that I know specifically Texas was looking at was depression. Mm -hmm. um, so that they say that a lot of... Uh, I say they, as in the doctors on the task force, um, say that depression is another leading cause of maternal mortality. It's just not captured because you typically don't have a depression death within 42 days of giving birth. Mm -hmm. um, 
So that seems like it would be something easy to do. Let's just expand the windows. It's actually not that easy, um, surprisingly. Mm -hmm. You have to go through the WHO. So as we mentioned earlier, the member states of the WHO use the, the timetable of 42 days. So and the WHO being? The World Health Organization. All right, thank you. Sorry. Nope, just good um, to clear, remind as we go yeah. along. Yeah. To expand it to 365, it would have to go into the new um, international classification of disease. So whatever edition is currently coming out. However, to get it through there, it has to go through the Updating and Revisions Committee. If they approve it, it has to go through the World Health Organization's Family of International Classifications. And then finally, it would have to go through the General Assembly, just for a numeric change. All right. Um, so a pretty serious process at the... World Health Organization level of systematically right. changing it internationally. Right. Okay. Um, and I mean, that you could think about that and say, well, that's not really going to do much. But I think giving a larger window to actually grasp, you know, depression is causing this. Maybe we need to divert more of our money to to mental health care or something like that would, would maybe help with that. that. Yeah, I mean, it seems pretty clear that uh, a woman's health could be affected by a pregnancy more than a month and a half after the pregnancy. I mean, given the factors we've talked about today, that seems pretty clear. So I, I, that seems like a to better capture the understanding of the problem, that seems like a good uh, piece of this. Um, what else? Yeah, go ahead. Okay, what we found was... Um Surprising, during the 20th century, the United States had a significant decline in maternal mortality rates, and this was uh, attributed to achievements in family planning. Mm -hmm. And then uh, things changed, mm -hmm. and now this rate is increasing. Mm -hmm. And considering that half of the pregnancies in the U.S. are unintended, uh, that means half. Was half, half 45%. Of the 45, okay, so 45%, 45 yeah. of the pregnancies are unintended pregnancies. Unintended. Okay. Unintended pregnancies include uh, missed time and unwanted pregnancies. Mm -hmm. So considering that um, the prevalence of contraceptive methods and the maternal mortality rate have a strong negative correlation, this gives us a clear idea where policies, policymakers should focus. Mm -hmm. um, that's why we um, we recommend an increase uh, in access to family planning, specifically fulfilling the filling the substantial need for um, contraceptive methods. Mm -hmm. So, let's talk a little bit about family planning for a minute, because I think in the U.S. there's some misunderstanding among what it means, what family planning is. There's there was there's been controversy around uh, Planned Parenthood and sort of the terminology of family planning. And I think in general, it gets associated explicitly with uh, abortions. So when we're talking about family planning um, and getting resources that, when we're talking about like education for the mothers, access to contraception, like checking in to know when is a good time for her body to be having a child, what types of risk factors she had. I mean, these are the family planning things that you're talking about? Are there, am I missing other major pieces? No, yes, and it's very important to uh, determine that uh, family planning also provides preconception healthcare, mm -hmm. um, which makes uh, the mother or the couple be in perfect health to plan a pregnancy mm -hmm. and to deliver a safe pregnancy, mm -hmm. uh, which certainly would uh, decrease the, the rate of maternal mortality. So more resources, I mean, this. Seems kind of clear, but more resources towards the ability to 
have access to information and tools to conduct family planning in a way that people, I mean, 45% of pregnancies being unintended is sort of mind blowing to me all in of its own. So having more resources just so there are less unintended pregnancies um, seems, and family planning seems like it could be a piece of that. All right. What other pieces? Yeah, we also, um, in the same in the same context of family planning, we talk about abortions effect on maternal mortality rates. Uh -huh. And even though um, women have access to safe abortions, uh, they prefer to go under unsafe circumstances due to cultural mm -hmm. factors or religious factors. So they put themselves in risk. Mm -hmm. And uh, the rate of death um, with the safe uh, abortion process is 0.7 uh, for 100,000. Mm -hmm. Really low. Yes, yeah. it's very low. And this increases with unsafe abortions. So it's not only about taking care um, of the plan for getting pregnant, for getting safe pregnancies, but it's also providing women with safety, safety tools. Mm -hmm. um, but so having access to um, safe abortions would be related to lower maternal deaths. Yes, considering that uh, in the causes of maternal mortality rates, we have sepsis, infection, hemorrhages, and this is um, a consequences a consequence of unsafe abortions. And so, an unsafe abortions um, occur for cultural reasons, as you mentioned, which is, I guess, um, not wanting to um, not wanting to have a health professional conduct them because then there's a record of it. Mm -hmm. um, and also, I know in the U.S., it's also um, not really easy to get access to a safe abortion necessarily. And so like in Texas, for example, there are little to no clinics. Um, I think There's essentially zero. Two. two. Yeah. And so I, I also am not sure that it's that women even have access often in at least in Texas to safe abortions. Um, so access to safe abortions would uh, lower, uh, be a contributing way to lower the maternal death rate. Mm -hmm. um, and increasing access to family planning services um, would also clearly be useful as well, right? Right, and I actually just wanted to note, uh, because Carolina mentioned the rate of uh, maternal mortality with safe abortions just being 0.7 out of that uh, 100,000 women. Uh, we talked earlier about the C-section rate and the rate of death uh, with C-sections is 2.2 out of 100,000. So the number of women dying from safe abortions is less significantly than the women have died, that are dying from C-sections. Mm -hmm. It's really the unsafe abortions that are driving this. All right, and so we're getting pretty close on time, I think, but I think there were a couple, as I recall from your report, uh, maybe one or two more solutions that we should hit on. Sure. Yeah, um, so I think um, kind of the issue that we've talked about is the access to healthcare, and kind of as Carolina kind of um, fought what us through is the idea that there are many aspects of um, family planning, and so there are some public policies in the U.S. that kind of prohibit women from having the full range of family planning options that are out there. Mm -hmm. um, so one of the specific things that we talked about that would kind of 
give women more options and allow them to um, open doors for lower income women specifically is would be the re re would be repealing the Hyde Amendment. Okay. Tell me what um, one thing you mentioned is that repealing the Hyde Amendment would be useful. So what exactly is the Hyde Amendment? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So for those who aren't familiar, the Hyde Amendment bars federal U.S. dollars from being um, used in an abortion. Um, so this means that federal programs such as Medicaid cannot be used um, to fund a uh, to fund an abortion. Um, so this is really significant because right now 15.6 million women receive um, Medicaid funding. And so that means that that whole swath of women who, because they qualify for Medicaid, are already med uh, monetarily disadvantaged. So that whole number of 15.6 million women don't have access to uh, funded abortions if they chose to go that route. So which highlights what we were just talking about, which I'm sure pushes them towards unsafe abortions. Exactly. Right? Yeah. Okay. So that's the Hyde Amendment. Is there anything else we should know? Yeah. Um, just quickly, I think one thing that, um, especially, you know, being from Texas, it's a the biggest, one of the biggest states. Mm -hmm. um, so we have a lot of rural areas. Something else Texas is proud of, right? Yeah. <laughs> uh, I won't say whether it's as big as California or not. We won't go there. Yeah. <laughs> um, so there's a lot of rural communities in Texas and so um, and of course in all of America um, so one of the things that we thought would be helpful is this um, is lessening the gap of the rural urban disparity in healthcare. Um, so this would help you know obviously not only women who are at risk of dying because they don't have access to um, a hospital in the town that they live in but also you know health overall in the United States um, so just um, increasing funding to um, to having higher tiered health centers in rural areas. Mm -hmm. um, so that's just one of the other things that we... Yes, discussed. I uh, looked into this a little bit lately with some work on hospitals that I've been doing. And it's a, shocking to me how far some people are from good quality health care. Yeah. Um, or just to a hospital, mm -hmm. uh, much less a, right, a wider range of specialists or different, you know, a number of different OBGYNs mm -hmm. to choose from or general practitioners, right? There's, and there's not incentives often for, um, for people to go to those communities and serve. I know there are some, um, I'm not going to recall them off the top of my head, but I have a uh, cousin who is in um, medical school and who is interested in serving in rural communities. And I know that there are some incentives already in place for doing that. So um, finding ways to increase those um, could, uh, and other tools could also help with this. Yeah. All right, this is a lot. We're getting close to the hour mark. So let's uh, go ahead and wrap up. Is there anything that you haven't gotten the chance to say about the issue of mother maternal, maternal, let's see, I'll get it right. Maternal mortality rate. I'll get it, um, <laughs> that you didn't have a chance to share already. Yes, I think it's important to know that only in 2011, the unintended pregnancies cost the state of Texas like $3 billion. And it's also important to consider that contraceptive methods not only uh, prevent uh, women to get pregnant, but also prevent lots of um, other medical uh, Problems, yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. <laughs> yes, that would cost more money to the state. So yeah. it's it's kind of 
confusing to see how the state does not want to um, provide access to family planning to women, but still it's costing a lot of money to the state to um, go ahead with this problem. This is, and this is something that we have all talked about in class that remains infuriating to yours truly, which is that these resources, we're having to spend them anyways, yeah. right? And so if we actually cared one, about reducing government spending, we would take the money that we're having to spend on these other uh, uh, consequences of not taking care of our women and children, right? If you put them on the front end, it takes less of them to um, to address the issue. It's just like with education, like there is a positive return on, every, on dollar spent on education. Um, and so if we are serious about one, improving the well-being of citizens, and two, cutting the overall amount of resources society has to dedicate to these things, doing it on the back end after the harm has already happened seems like the wrong way to do this. And so one of the things I really like that you all did is highlight some more preventative ways that it's cheaper on the front end if we give uh, women access to better health care, if we give women time off from work, um, that not only reduces the likelihood that they will die, which seems important enough on its own, but even more so, we could do it with the less resources that we're already having to spend, which just seems insane. Um, so, um, see, one more comment after my rant there. Go ahead. So just to give you some numbers, earlier Haley mentioned that there was 14 deaths for every 100,000 live births uh, in the United States in 2015. So when we saw that statistic, one of the first things that popped in our head, well, how many babies were born in 2015? So in 2015, there were a little less than 4 million babies born in the United States. So if you do the math, that's about 400,000 babies divided by 365 days. There are approximately 11,000 babies born a day in 2015. So therefore, it would take us about nine days to reach 100,000 births. I know it's a lot of math. <laughs> staying with you. I'm staying with you. <laughs> therefore, it would take us about nine days to reach 100,000 births. So that would means it's, every nine days, there are 14 deaths because of maternal mortality. So... Be, um, Every year, there's approximately 560 maternal mortality deaths in the United States. That was 2015. We don't even know what 2017 is going to look like when those stats come out later, um, mm -hmm. probably the beginning of next year. So that's just a, that's a crazy number to think about. Mm -hmm. 560, that's a lot of deaths, just mm -hmm. from something that we shouldn't be having an issue with in a developed country like the mm -hmm. United States. Yeah. Mm -hmm. All right. Well, thanks so much for your work. Um, this was a lot of, uh, this was a lot. Um, it's, um, as a lot of these talks are, you know, coming, staring these things face to face for the, uh, for the significance of them and the solvability of them, right? I mean, it's not like we, do, we can't rearrange the way in which we allocate resources and policies to make the number of women that are dying um, as a result of being a mother um, lower. And so thanks for drawing some of these connections for us, covering the history and um, taking the time to research it. I really appreciate it. So uh, thanks again. Thanks for listening. Thanks for following along with us. And um, we'll talk with you next time. Thank you all. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode of Season 2 of the Public Problems Podcast. If you would like to help support this podcast, you can do so by sharing the episodes with your friends, family, students, and liking our page and following along as we do live events. 
You can also support the Public Problems Podcast financially by subscribing to the podcast at justinbullock.org slash subscribe or by clicking the Shop Now button on our Facebook page. Here you can pick any monthly subscription or single donation amount that you'd like to contribute. Any support is greatly appreciated. I very much believe in this podcast and its content and hope to make it more visible and have more time to spend on it in the future. Thank you very much.